0: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
1: that's wise. w i s e.com wise.com Jane,
2: that sweatshirt is stolen valor.
3: This sweatshirt is not stolen valor as I believe marriage gets me in here. I've spoken at Harvard and I went to the reunion, so All right. Well,
2: that's that's more than I've done. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I am here with Jane Costen and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, Election Day 2020 is one week away. And uh, because we normally record on Tuesday mornings, but that would be weird uh, with an election coming, uh, we are actually going to do a special kind of live taping. Me and Jane and Ellen Nelson, who's been covering a lot of Senate races and actually knows what's going on uh, in things that are important, are going to do a kind of a, a live recording event um, to which contributors to the Vox program are invited. So if you Like the weeds, like Vox, like parting with money, want to know what's going on. This would be a great time to sign up and be a contributor. Until then, I've been thinking about the election and what my... Actual, I, I, I started thinking about this subject that Dara is going to enlighten us on um, when everybody was raring mad that Joe Biden would not give a crystal clear answer on court packing, uh, because I just didn't feel that uncertain as to like what the deal is with Democrats and court packing, which is that it just kind of depends on what happens, uh, whereas. A big question I have that Democrats did not really answer during the primary, that Biden, for sort of contingent reasons, has not been pressed on by Trump or by the media self-starting is like, what is he actually going to do? with the incredible series of changes Trump has made to how the southern border is policed in the United States. Because on the one hand, this is a very emotionally motivating topic for sort of the college educated liberal resistance base, like kids in cages is this, this like byword for Trumpian evil. But as we've discussed a million times on the show, that mentality is pretty detached from the specifics of what's actually happening. And, you know, uh, our lived experience of Joe Biden being vice president and Barack Obama being president is that a democratic administration does not really want to like give the runners the signal that like any kind of family unit should show up and make asylum claims at at the southern border. So I feel like there's going to be a sort of sticky situation where Biden is going to want to unravel some stuff while also trying to continue discouraging people in a practical sense from arriving. And I know, Tara, I mean, you've been You've been reporting on like what is the what is the situation? What are the actual rules? And like what what are the choices that we're going to face as we have a new administration? Hopefully, at some point, the pandemic wanes, and and what what's on the agenda?
4: So I, I think that you've identified the fundamental dynamic, which is that you know, should Joe Biden win the election, the people who are likely to be making these decisions are going to have to try to satisfy the goal of unraveling Trump's policies with a concern. And I, but I would, I would put this slightly differently, a concern that any increase in traffic across the U.S.-Mexico border of people without papers is going to be seen as their fault. Like the the actual role of, you know, sending a signal to people is one of the really important uncertain questions here. Um, and, you know, the Trump administration, to various extents, is kind of already saying that any increase from this month, even before the election, is happening because people are excited because Joe Biden's going to give them amnesty. And the empirical evidence for that is lacking. There. There is some nu- nuance that
2: one could get into, but but if but if Biden does win, right? It's if nothing else, just like marketing common sense from the standpoint of smugglers, right? To be like, to be like, oh, it's all different now. Pay me money, Joe Biden's president. Right.
4: Okay. So there, are, so there are three different strands here. One is that the million dollar question is what information people have when they make the decision to migrate, and that is mediated by information that they're getting word of mouth from people who have just made the journey. And it's also mediated to a certain extent by what they're hearing from smugglers. But smugglers don't like, yes, from a marketing standpoint, if Joe Biden wins, there's there's absolutely a marketing argument for like, hey, come on. On the other hand, there's also always an incentive to just like make stuff up. And there is, (laughs) you know, there's, there's kind of been some suggestive anecdotal evidence that like, Trump's saber rattling about the border was also used as marketing by smugglers, like, hey, you got to come through now because it's your last chance. So it's hard to it's hard to predict what the kind of marginal effect of that is. The other thing that's really important is that, it costs a lot of money to migrate to the United States. One academic who researches this who I talked to put it like, people aren't going to mortgage their houses for something that might could possibly happen. There is more suggestive evidence that when there's like a clear commitment, like the canonical example of this is when Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, he had been promising on the campaign trail to end the interdiction at sea of Haitians, which prevented them from getting to the U.S. to make asylum claims. And after the election, the transition, his transition team started getting intel that people were like building boats on Haitian beaches and like planning to come over because there was this very clear like, oh, this is the thing that's been stopping us from getting in and this is going to go away. The transition's response was to announce that they weren't going to end that policy. They were going to, you know, review it. And it it never actually got rescinded. Um that's the fear that Democrats continue to have, you know it's it's something that was absolutely relevant to their response in 2014 when they dealt with the spike in the number of unaccompanied kids coming into the United States. It's impossible to disentangle the policy from the politics here, right? Because there is a policy argument that you want to strike a balance between not being too restrictive and expelling people who have legitimate asylum claims, but that if you're too permissive, too many people who won't ultimately qualify for asylum will, will like make this dangerous journey and will give revenue to criminal organizations and all of that. That is impossible to disentangle from the politics argument of we have other things we want to do. And we're worried that if we're getting attacked for being soft on the border and getting overwhelmed by the border, that that will keep us from doing the things we want to do. Those two arguments point in exactly the same direction. And it can be kind of tricky to figure out when people are making the empirical, this is what's causing it. And when they're making the political, it doesn't matter why it's getting caused. We need to do everything in our power to prevent it, because if it happens, it'll be our fault.
3: Right. And I think it's an interesting point that you make that basically if you have a immigration hawk that doesn't seem to discourage people who are like, you have to go now or else something will happen. Or if you have someone who is perceived as being more lax on the border, whether or not that's actually true, because I think that our interpretation of being, quote unquote, soft on the border is utterly untethered to anything that's actually happening. But I wanted to ask you. So one of the things we've talked about is that like Stephen Miller has said that, oh, there's you know, there's this drawer full of unsigned executive orders that are, I don't know, more powerful than anything we've ever seen, like tiny little death stars um, of immigration policy. But in terms of a hypothetical Biden administration, how much of what has happened over the last four years is locked into regulatory stone? And how much, when we're going down to the sub, sub-regulatory level, how much is changeable within the first couple of months of a new administration? And what would that look like in you, in the work that you've done? So the
4: answer to this like varies and varies in a way that frankly, there's there was a wave of stories in like late August, early September, that was a lot of like, Trump has done so much that four years of Biden couldn't undo it all. And like that is true as a top-line assessment, but it's not very useful as a top line assessment because that's basically saying like this massive massive swath of policy can't all be undone and It's difficult to get into to get to a detailed enough level that it's useful without just getting overwhelming. That said, it did seem that some of the motivator of those stories was like Stephen Miller himself giving interviews to like Reuters where he was like, well, the good thing about these regulations having taken so long is that they also take a long time to undo, which given the reporting from like 2018 that Stephen Miller was very frustrated with how slowly the regulatory process went does seem to kind of. It it seems a little bit like uh, an effort to, you know, for for kind of Stephen Miller to demonstrate that he has learned something about the
2: regulatory process. Also, just broadly, it's like nothing is ever totally undone, right? It's too much, right? It's like policy on every issue is a constant evolution. And like Trump has changed it a lot. Biden could change it a lot, too. And he's never said, right, I'm going to just like exactly recreate the status quo of December 2016. Democrats have always been notionally, right? Like, we're going to let people make asylum claims, but also slightly hazy fairy dust. Like, something will happen in Central America that makes people no longer want to come here.
4: Yeah. So so speaking broadly about immigration policy, kind of the hardest stuff to do is going to be the stuff that's been written in regulation. The caveat there is that every regulation the Trump administration has put has put in place has been litigated and most of that litigation is still ongoing in some form or another so a super super aggressive strategy would be to both drop the appeals of the court cases where they've lost like even Trump appointed judges have said, no, you can't enforce your regulation that says that you can't get asylum if you came through Mexico t- you know to get to the United States. It would not be that hard to drop that appeal. It would be harder for them to set it's harder but not impossible for them to settle in litigation where they were previously winning. like the you know, if they really wanted to do this and this is a little bit this isn't a regulation but it's the the first thing that's coming to mind they could just settle over the remain in Mexico policy before it gets to the Supreme Court even though it's been allowed to go into effect or like they could settle on on the the regulation on how to define public charge when people are applying for green cards even though they've been winning on that one that's You'd have to have a very aggressive DOJ uh, because for understandable reasons, the DOJ doesn't generally like rolling over on lawsuits where it's been winning. So, you know, so uh, that's something where you'd need to be spending a, a little bit of political capital. Everything else short of that is just like, how quickly does your bureaucracy run? There's absolutely nothing institutionally that's preventing them from, say, undoing the changes to how, to like the training curriculum that asylum officers are given on, when to decide that someone is credible when they're telling their story of how they were persecuted. That said, it just changing those materials takes long enough, doing all the necessary levels of review takes long enough that, like, you would still be talking about a timeline of months. And that's if the message were sent from kind of All levels of the bureaucracy down, that this is a really big priority for us. And whatever else you have on your plate, like you should definitely be moving this as quickly as you possibly can. The easiest stuff to undo is the stuff that kind of is working on a day by day basis to begin with, which is generally like not how people are dealt, not how people go through the legal process in the US, but where they are to begin to begin with like what happens to them when they're arrested uh the CDC order that has allowed for the expulsion of basically everybody coming into the US without papers since March wouldn't be that hard to undo it's definitely a question like epidemiologically whether because Mexico is in such a worse position with regards to COVID than it was in March whether that would be seen as a like an epidemiologically wise decision. Biden has promised to undo the uh, remain in Mexico program in the first 100 days, which is more relevant if he is undoing the CDC order than if he's not because if he's saying yes, you no longer have to wait in Mexico for your asylum hearings, but also we're sending you back to Mexico without an asylum hearing, like that's not a you know, not a huge difference. Um but if he does undo both, it does re- it would certainly Uh, increase the number of people who are allowed to stay in the United States who are ultimately released into the United States pending asylum hearings. Uh, And there are these cooperative agreements with Central American governments, which in Guatemala had been put into place before the pandemic. Honduras and El Salvador have these agreements on paper that they'll do this that have that weren't operationalized yet, which say that what the U.S. can send asylum seekers who aren't from those countries to those countries and say, go apply for asylum here instead. It would be pretty easy to just like, you know, to not resume doing that with Guatemala, to not start the process with Honduras and El Salvador if a Biden administration were elected. The question is whether that's something that they would see as just another like unacceptable Trump crackdown or whether that's something that they would want to you know that that they that they would be on board with as a more sustainable regional solution and that's a
5: very open question
2: let's take a break and and then i think it would be good to to sort of delve into that
5: support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: So to me, these diplomatic agreements are sort of the most interesting aspect of the Trumpian mix, right? Because they really achieve the like crass goal of externalizing the issue whereby, I I mean, as far as I can tell, like the, the politics of this asylum issue are that people don't like to see agents of the American government doing cruel things to children and families in need, But people also don't love the idea of lots of children and families in need arriving at the southern border and being released into the United States. So catching them up in Guatemala, we're just like, I don't think anything that has ever happened in Guatemala has like made front page news in the United States or like dominated cable television. You know, it has like incredible out of sight, out of mind capacity from the standpoint of like normie politics, like regular Democrats who I speak to, like rank and file people who were marching in the streets against family separation have never mentioned to me like the in-transit detention of, you know, would-be migrants in Guatemala or, or southern Mexico and Trump has one way of doing this, which is very kind of like arm twisty, we're going to make you go. But the highbrow Democratic answer on this, like going back to 2014, has always struck me as not actually that different from what Trump was Doing Right. So like what they would say if, if you spoke to congressional Democrats in 2015 and 2016, 2017 about this, they'd be like, look, you know, we have laws. People have a right to declare asylum. But like the real issue here is we have to address these push factors in Central America. And, you know, they're like liberals. Right. So like they don't say like we should bribe authoritarian regimes to kidnap people. Right. Or like we should coerce desperately poor countries. But They're saying something is going to happen with the American foreign aid budget and perhaps American security assistance, and that thing is going to cause people to no longer come to the United States. And we've seen from from Europe, right, a deploying of a, of a similar tactic in, in North Africa without the like Trumpy antics.
3: Right, where the German government is like, wouldn't it be cool if you, North African country, maybe put these people in prison I don't know, indefinitely, because maybe it would be awesome if they did not attempt to enter the European community. And then these North African countries are like, that sounds great to us. Please hand us money. So it's not unheard of.
4: The externalization of borders, primarily for the purpose of dealing with what are called migration flows of people who, some of whom are asylum, or like probably have asylum claims, but not all of whom do, mixed flows, uh, is a pretty common global feature. And it makes sense because it's the easy solution to the problem of, on the one hand, you have a bedrock commitment in national law to not turn away people who are on your soil, who are fleeing persecution. On the other hand, you don't necessarily know and can't Predict which of those particular people are in fact fleeing persecution or not. Like it's it's it cuts that Gordian knot, and I do think that it's really just to underline Matt what you were saying about the out of sight out of mind phenomenon. Like I think that this is a little bit harder for people to grasp because it does seem that the Trump era as a whole has uh, made. Americans slightly warmer toward immigration and certainly that like things like family separation uh, in particular pointed a large amount of outrage at the treatment of people who were newly arriving that hadn't been there previously but the bedrock assessment among establishment democrats is that immigration in general is a winning issue for them that the treatment of people who are in the united states like the people who are settled unauthorized immigrants is a winning issue and a high policy priority for them. And because that is not as obviously true for what you do with asylum seekers and because there is a policy argument, for you know for doing something other than being maximally permissive that becomes seen as a potential distraction and a potential political liability in 2014 the trump admi- or the obama administration you know announced a review of its enforcement policies in like March or April, which was widely seen to be preparation for expanding its deferred action programs so that more unauthorized immigrants would be protected from deportation. And then when the child migrant crisis hit in summer, it like had to spend its energy addressing that and getting Congress to appropriate the necessary money and demonstrating sufficient toughness to attempt to deter future asylum seekers. And the executive actions on immigration got pushed back till after the midterms. So whether that dynamic is still in place, obviously, like we can't know for sure. But certainly looking at the way that the that Joe Biden has approached subjects like this, he sees this as a regional solution. And he was actually personally the point person in 2014 and like going to Guatemala and meeting with the heads of state of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador and saying, yes, we all agree that that it's bad for parents to put their children into the hands of smugglers. We agree that these children should be returned to their parents, even though their parents were the ones who had like set them to begin with. Um, we all agree that the long term solution is for people to feel comfortable enough where they are that they don't need to you know that they don't need to emigrate there are development policy questions of like whether if that policy had been allowed to stay in place, it would have worked. Like there was some suggestive evidence that like in El Salvador, a development policy did in fact diminish emigration in future. Obviously, there wasn't a whole lot of time between mid-2014 and a new administration coming into office and development does take time. So it's possible that like true regionalism has never been tried and that, that that isn't necessarily a sufficient answer. It certainly doesn't address the kind of short-term, like, what do you do with the people who are coming now? What do you do with the people who are leaving next month? You can't necessarily tell them, oh, as long as you don't starve in the next three years, eventually things will be okay. And so while there are medium-term ways to try to funnel irregular migration into like more regular migration, like expand people being able to apply for asylum in their home countries or get UNHCR to like set up more of a presence through the region so that more people can be resettled via the refugee resettlement system into the United States. Like there definitely is a short-termism, long-termism problem here. And it's not a problem that Democrats have ever felt the need to really, like, go out on a limb on because it's neither proven as policy nor politics.
2: And there are circumstances, right, in the literature where economic development at certain points on the curve leads to more out-migration because people obtain the financial resources to to go, right? I mean, I mean you don't see, right? Obviously, people don't leave beyond a certain point of economic development, people don't leave without papers absent some kind of really acute disastrous situation, just like you see Puerto Rico and and the United States, right? Like when Hurricane Maria devastates the island, a ton of people leave. But, you know, in the year before that, not so many. Puerto Rico is poorer than the mainland United States, but it's reasonably affluent kind of place. Um, But it, it costs a lot of money to come. Right. Like you don't see people from Chad uh, trying to get to the United States generally uh, be- because like they can't. Right. But you can read like Biden's uh, policy agenda on Central America, which is which is very nice. It's, it's four billion dollars in money and it's the rule of law and it's anti-corruption. And it's like it's great. You know, like we do all those things. <laughs> Life in the Northern Triangle should be wonderful. Um, but there's like I think genuinely no reason at all to believe that like at the margin Slightly increasing the per capita income in Guatemala and Nicaragua and Honduras would reduce people's interest in exploring opportunities to leave, Uh, particularly because like the violence levels are so high that even if they're a lot, even if they're somewhat lower, like they're still really high. Like it's still going to be a good reason to leave. Like people are still going to be targeted by gang violence.
4: Yeah. And, and frankly, in the recent history of these countries, times of diminished violence have usually been shown shortly thereafter to be the result of government corruption and government entangle, like government's agreements with organized criminal groups to like not crack down or, you know, in the case of the, the Mano Dura policy in El Salvador, like very draconian policies that led to issues with human rights. It's very difficult to do like rule of law, human rights and diminished violence all at the same time. Um, But yes, no, I think that this is, I think, frankly, in practice, what I, one of the things that I came away from the 2014 crisis uh, really being sensitive to was the fact that in policy debates, you kind of get a, get like plus 10 to gravitas for saying, well, we really need to address the root causes. And like though that's a very <laughs> yeah, yeah. easy way to build consensus. It's a very easy way to project that you are concerned with the well-being of the subjects of your policies. Um, in cases like this one, where that has nothing to do with your short-term response, it can provide cover for a harsher or less humanitarian minded short term response than you would otherwise be able to get away with because you're saying you can't accuse us of not caring about these, you know, a, a, of not caring about these asylum seekers. We care so much about them that we're not willing to let them put themselves in danger. And we're trying to make it so that they can stay in a safe place instead.
2: And I mean, to be blunt, uh, the United States government has a, uh, extensive history of attempting to address quote unquote root causes of problems in Central America. I mean going well back
5: well, addressing, to, well, but, but, addressing. But, but but that's what I mean
2: though. You know what I mean? Like it's it's yes. it it requires a level of uh willful suspension of disbelief i think Real to to be there. like oh okay <laughs> this time we're going to because of course you you would look back right i'm sure if i if you asked tony blinken like what's going on he'd be like no 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 i mean the opposite of like the 5,000 times America has intervened in Central America and made things worse. But like at the time the people were doing those things, they weren't saying like, I'm going to destabilize these countries and worsen the human rights situation. Like the claim is always (laughs) that you're addressing it. And and I like to think, you know, as, as awful as like the Reagan administration's approach to Central America was, if they had a magic button that would have been like drastically improve the economic and security situation in all of these countries instead of empowering right wing death squads. Like, I think they would have pressed the magic button. It's like they just they didn't have a magic button. So they, they did what they did. And it, it, it was awful. And I, I don't I, I think Biden will do better than that. But like, there's just there's no way they're going to address the root causes like they they don't know how. And like, it's a, I don't know how either. Like, nobody knows how. Fundamentally,
4: what we are seeing in the like, quote unquote, Northern Triangle countries of Central America right now is something that we that like. The international refugee and asylum system wasn't built for it was built for clear cut cases of government persecution because it did not imagine circumstances in which the most powerful institution over your lives would be a criminal organization and the government would be largely absent it's impossible to disentangle fully from climate migration which is you know just not a category of migration that even analytically exists even in like international law exists um you know we think of economic migration as being this opportunistic thing, like, oh, I want to make my life better and make my family's life better, rather than a, I can't survive where I am,
3: and right. But we're already we're already in a scenario in which multiple places no longer yes, exist, right, right. Like to the extent that that was ever true, it's less true when it's like literal
4: starvation. Um, so it does. It it scrambles it scrambles the framework we have, and you know that's that again is why the smart money medium to long term is we've never had a meaningful refugee resettlement infrastructure for people for places that are close to us. And we should fix that (laughs) Um, because these problems aren't going to go away. And frankly, refugee resettlement as a process is just a little bit better suited to thinking about people as like In mortal peril, rather than trying to fit them into boxes of how exactly are you being persecuted. There's some of both, but it's less of the okay, the most important thing we can do for you right now is put you into a legal process where we litigate whether your family was prominent enough to count as social distinction under the third prong of what counts as a particular social group. Like, it's not that the US doesn't have easy answers, it's that there aren't easy answers, and the US. Is in a position where the problems of other countries, of these particular other countries, are inevitably going to affect the US, whether it would like them to or not. There, it's not Australia where like you can just interdict everybody at sea. So the worst case scenario, getting back to what kind of the short term concerns about the optics of the border in January, January twenty twenty one, are is like this is what we've been dealing with with central america in a situation where mexico is doing pretty okay like there's an argument that i find fairly persuasive that one of the big reasons you see an increase in central american migration after the great recession is that smuggling organizations turned their attention away from the mexican market because they didn't have the demand to emigrate from mexico that they'd had previously If Mexico is as looks as bad coming out of the pandemic as it might, given how bad the pandemic has been there, given that the economic situation was already pretty shaky in in, under the Lopez Obrador administration in the time before that, given that the security administration security situation was already deteriorating in parts of the country like Mexico is Closer to the US than Central American countries are, and it's much bigger. And so, even a marginal change in the number of people emigrating from Mexico is going to have a much more outsized effect on the number of people coming into the United States than a change in the number of people emigrating from Central America would.
2: Well, and, you know, Trump has approached the COVID border situation in an almost entirely pretextual way. I mean, which we can tell is pretextual because he has so little interest in COVID control through other means. We also know it's pretextual
4: thanks to some really excellent reporting from both my organization and Reuters and the Wall Street Journal that, like, career scientists at the CDC did not want to sign off on things that were ostensibly CDC policies at the border, that those had come from DHS and the White House, and that they were essentially star- strong armed into going
2: along. Right. But I it, but it just mean, like, the the political disposition of the Trump White House is clearly to impose a lesser set of restrictions on human activity than public health officials generally recommend. Right. It's not like inconceivable that you would say, no, the CDC is wrong. We need to be more restrictive than that. But like, that's just like not what Donald Trump thinks about the CDC, right? Whereas Biden has campaigned very clearly, very strongly on the principle that we need to make virus control our top priority as a nation. And in the context of an administration that's actually doing that, right, you know, a federal mask mandate in the jurisdictions where you're able to do it. As he said, he would be like one-on-one meeting with governors to tighten up rules that are outside federal responsibility. You know, this, that, and the other thing, right? In that context, very draconian border policies fit really really nicely like canada closed the border to americans at one point during this process like not because like justin trudeau is a crude nationalist uh, but like that's that's you know justin ardern in uh, new zealand who is more, sort of an all around immigration restrictionist um, but just like border closures have been a feature of pandemic management from a lot of people and at least in the shortest term provides a way to sort of punt on a lot of these conceptual questions, right? Like it's very unlikely that Mexico is gonna have the world's best vaccine distribution process. Like that would be odd. Um, so you should have an extended period of time in which, you know, there will be some equities involved in saying, like, well, we gotta, we gotta just close this down for public health reasons.
4: Again, it's really tricky to disentangle the policy from the politics here because in general public health experts tend to be very very dovish on immigration and believe that like travel travel restrictions aren't you know are very rarely the right way to go about things you could puzzle your way through to an argument that like when we're talking about people who are being smuggled in tractor trailers you know that are like poorly ventilated and this is an argument that the trump administration is like now making in a Kind of like gotcha sort of way, um, that the people who are coming to the like who are like being smuggled to the US are less likely than most to be protected from COVID. And so there's a particular risk there. It's also true that when keeping a policy in place would like solve or defer more problems than it creates, it's much harder to change the policy away from it. But what Really do want to hammer home is that, you know, I mentioned the kind of like interaction of the CDC order with the Remain in Mexico program, like in passing earlier, but the Remain in Mexico program is the rare example of something that hasn't activated large swaths of the American public in outrage, but has gotten foothold within the Democratic establishment as like something that is bad and needs to change. Like a lot of Democratic members of Congress have visited the de facto refugee camp, which the only reason it's not a refugee camp is refugee camps are actually like governed um in Matamoros. You know, there is concern for the conditions in which people are waiting in Mexico. There's concern for the fact that like ostensibly they've been promised court dates in the United States, but those court dates are now going to be stretched out into like 2022. If you keep the CDC order in place and don't do anything to address those people, like The Matamoros camp has already shrunk by several hundred since the beginning of the pandemic because the combination of waiting in terrible conditions, waiting indefinitely, waiting indefinitely in the midst of a pandemic, and like the flooding and hurricanes that they've had to deal with in the Rio Grande Valley, you do get a certain... uh, sense of attrition and ditto into in Tijuana, there are people who are headed home. There are also people who are just trying to cross through the Sonoran desert, which is much more dangerous because it's less likely that they'll get caught. So there is a cost to waiting in a humanitarian sense. and if those people are high priorities to provide redress to, that is something that is going to kind of run smack dab into the, well, it's going to be easier for us to solve to not solve this problem just yet.
2: Second break, do the white paper.
1: WISE is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W I S E.com. WISE.com.
6: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience.
2: Our paper today, Voting with Their Sandals, Partisan Residential Sorting on Climate Change Risk by Asaf Bernstein, Stephen Billings, Matthew Gustafson, and Ryan Lewis. Um, So this, you have probably seen, if you follow the news, some kinds of articles somewhere in which people will say that like real estate prices, you know, already show motion, uh, due to climate change flood risk, or insurance companies are pricing in climate change. And the sort of optimistic read on this that I've always had is that, like, people have their, like, partisan politics brain, and then there's the, like, what do you actually do? And you see in markets that, like, people are reacting to real changes that are happening, and it gives me sort of some hope that there's, like, a like a version of reality in which, um people will acknowledge problems and try to address them. Uh, This paper, by using much more detailed information uh, from Zillow and and all kinds of microdata about who people are, um, and also distinguishing places that are presently susceptible to floods from places that will disproportionately become more susceptible, as sea level rises, they show that there is a meaningful partisan difference that Democrats, with their real estate decisions, act like they believe the sea will be higher in the future and select away from properties that would be negatively impacted that, whereas Republicans uh, just see a, a bargain opportunity. And- do not. Right. And so it's the it's the opposite of the kind of bigger picture stories I've seen. It, it's not that prices don't move in response to climate change, like many. D- democrats are a large share of the population um and so what they think about things you know matters economically but the republicans do not have some like secret more practical side of themselves in which they acknowledge this to be a real problem they put their money where their mouth is or their sandals in the the chosen metaphor of 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 the authors of this paper and you know just kind of assume that The ocean will not go up, uh, which seems bad. My understanding is very strongly that it will. Like a Republican Senate candidate, I am not a scientist. uh, But unlike them, I have heard what the scientists say. And it's really not very ambiguous on this point.
3: I found it interesting, though, um, that the data indicates that the kind of residential sorting that they are researching appears to exist among the people who own the property, whether or not they live there or not, but not among people who rent the property. And as a a long-term renter, I I think a lot about these things. Um, But I also found it interesting how much of this had to do with the idea of perceived risk over time, that this type of partisan-based sorting does not necessarily exist with respect to Immediate flood risk, like if you are expecting, if you are thinking, I would like to buy this property on the edge of the Everglades in the midst of hurricane season, that's not what we're thinking about. We are thinking about trying to project over time. And I think it's fascinating because you see sometimes like, oh, the Obama's bought a property in Martha's Vineyard, which won't exist in whatever X amount of time. But that's not exactly what we're talking about. What we're thinking about is like how these decisions are shaped thinking over time Especially with regard to like specific regions and what we expect from those from climate change on those specific regions, right.
4: I, I do want to highlight that owner renter split because it's, I mean, it it makes sense for what the paper is examining, right? Like they're they're looking at how assessment of climate change as an issue like filters into investment decisions. But thinking about it as a partisan sorting thing, kind of fuzzies that a little bit because it makes it a little bit easier to see this through the lens of Republicans are like places where that are deliberate that are exposed to risk. Like Republicans are choosing to live in those places. And so there's there isn't necessarily an obligation to protect people from the consequences of their decisions if they're the ones who are choosing to ignore the science, which like isn't necessarily true for renters both because they don't necessarily have the economic power to like choose where they buy a house and because as the paper shows there isn't a sorting difference and so you see this right now with regards to like which you know the idea that like blue states give you know give money to the federal government and red states take away money from it like the kind of threats to solidarity posed by you know, you're living with the consequences of your own ideology are always limited by who gets to make decisions based on ideology rather than based on other material factors. And in this case, kind of results in a worst case scenario for the renters who neither get to avoid the consequences of climate change nor get to be understood as caring about it or, you know, have being able to take measures to mitigate it if they so chose.
2: So they show, right, one thing you can look at is how vulnerable is a property to a storm surge right now? Right. And they show that that impacts people's like real estate valuations, regardless of partisanship. Right. So like Republicans are not in denial about the fact that like there are places that are currently susceptible to flooding. And if you're renting like you can move. Right. So, you know, you you should be short term. Oriented about that, right? It's that the places that become dr- drastically more vulnerable if you see a foot or two of sea level rise. There's this incredible partisan split. Now, if you're a renter, right, I mean, uh, the sea level is rising, but it's it's not rising like like next week. The situation will be dramatically different, right? So, like fair. It, it's That's fair. it's fine. Like you, you you could move next year, right? That's the that's like one of the big benefits of of renting, but I, I mean, it's um, I don't I don't quite know how to say it. It's like it's not shocking exactly that like Republicans believe what they claim to believe, uh, but it is a little bit distressing, especially because you know the like the smart Republican position has shifted to like climate change. Is real, but the Green New Deal solution is too drastic, and we need to do like X, Y, and Z mitigation measures and blah blah blah. Um, Which you know, there are versions of which I think are are more and less reasonable than others. But like, it is all premised on assessing the fact that like there will in fact be harms, right? Like, if you there's a there's a phenomenon called um, solution aversion, right? If a problem is real, then to solve it, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But you don't want to do X, Y, and Z. So you deny that the thing even is a problem. And that's where, I mean, this study to me, it says that like that's where rank and file conservatives are. Like they're not up for brainstorming like different ways of thinking about this problem than Bernie Sanders might have because they have sincerely like with their investment dollars committed themselves to the view that like that the problem is fake not that like i reject the solutions that i've heard but i am worried about the flood so then if somebody has a more appealing solution i might take it like they 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 seem quite dug in in a way that's like that's challenging right because as as much as people will point an optimistic picture about like, well, we'll create all these clean energy jobs and blah, 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 blah. like fundamentally addressing climate change involves doing some things that you would not do if not for the fact that climate change is real right? Like the parts that are just good, like that's great. Like it's it, win-wins are real. Like like it's amazing. But it's like, it's really bad if certain parts of the world become much more susceptible to flooding and it justifies actions that would not otherwise be justified. But if you if you're convinced it's fake, like if you're so convinced you're going to tie up your retirement in a rental property that's going to be underwater. Like that that's not great.
3: It is not great. It is not.
2: All right. A lot of not great stuff here. Um, But, uh, you know, it's good. Um, Thanks, guys. Um, Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, uh, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Um, Check us out at the live show on Election Day. Uh, That'll be really cool. And The Weeds will be back on Friday.